right, Daniel 2, we have a lot to cover. We're not going to sprint, but it will be a, a, a light jog, let's say. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had a mayoral race in Indianapolis. has been contested. As I remember, the last one was in 2007 with uh, Greg Ballard challenged Bart Peterson, the then mayor. And um, uh, so it was, it was pretty, uh, Ballard was an outsider, a non-politician, at least that's what he ran on. He won, so I'm not sure. He might have been really a, a smart politician. And uh, it was very contested. And I remember as we were, our kids were going to school downtown at the time, we'd drive him down 16th Street. And it's like every yard had a yard sign either for Greg Ballard or Bart Peterson. Ballard, Peterson, Ballard, Peterson, Ballard, Ballard Peterson. And, uh, you know, Peterson was the incumbent. So it didn't, you know, they really, they rarely get unseated in, a, in like Indiana in any way. But surprisingly, Greg Ballard pulled the upset. And by 8 o'clock on that night, November 6, 2007, Bart Peterson conceded the race and said, I will become the outgoing mayor, not the ongoing mayor, even though he was going to be mayor for seven more weeks until January 1st. So that was about 8 o'clock at night. By 8 o'clock the next morning, it was almost like magic. All of the Peterson Yard signs on 16th Street had vanished. <laughs> um, there was a few stalwarts, and it seemed like there were even more Greg Ballard signs on 16th Street. Like, yeah, we made it, you know. Um, and although for the next seven weeks, Peterson administration was in charge, it was passing away. It had an expiration date that we knew about, December 31st. That was the expiration date. And no one was setting their hope in it. Not even enough to keep the yard sign up. Why is that? Well, Nobody sets their hope on something that's fading if they know that it's fading. Rarely. Rarely would someone set their hope on something that they know is fading. That doesn't make sense. That's not what we do as people, but we are very inclined to set our hope on something that has a future. We won't set our hope on something that's fading, but we're very inclined to set our hope on something we know has a future. And that's a picture of what we see today. One image the scripture gives us to help us interpret our life in this chapter of life is, the, is that of exile, meaning, as we began to see this last week, exile is when you're not in your home, home country. The scripture teaches that we are, we are not home yet. We are waiting this time with the, for the restoration of all things. When Christ returns and restores all things, that's what we really long for. That's what we're really waiting for. It's what was lost in the garden. It will be restored at the restoration of all things. So we're not quite home yet. We are in exile. We are longing to be in our home country or wait really longing for our home country to come to us. But... In the gospel, we're taught over and over again that in Christ, if you're in Christ by faith, you have begun the journey home already. That we are in Jesus in exile, so we can say we are at home in exile, but it's still a bit of a tenuous uh, situation, waiting for our home country, but when we're already really home. One of the places we're going to try for like a few weeks to get at the dynamic of what it's like to live in this situation is the book of Daniel. That's a time in the Old Testament where God's people were physically in exile. They had been exiled, they'd been carried off by the Babylonian Empire, and they were seeking to learn how to live faithfully when they were in exile. And we're looking at how does God interact with his people when they're in exile? To learn how he interacts with us when we are in this uh, another form, but a real form of exile. And this morning we're seeing that in exile, God nourishes his people with a vision of a kingdom that cannot be broken. 
He strengthens his people. You are designed to be strengthened with a vision of a kingdom that cannot be broken, even as we're living in the midst of all kinds of other kingdoms. He shows us what has a future, and he shows us what is fading. And we naturally put our hope in something that has a future and not that which is fading. Today we're seeing a picture of what Jesus will call the kingdom of God and what we might call the, the kingdoms of man or the kingdom of man. Kingdoms of man come in many sizes and shapes and names. In Daniel's time, it was Babylon. In our time, it is something like the United States or China or Mexico or some conglomeration of them like the the European Union or something. The kingdoms of man as pictured in the Bible aren't necessarily evil. I wanna say that the kingdoms of man aren't necessarily evil. In fact, Romans 13 teaches that God gives even pagan rulers to people for the good of people. But the problem is they're very corrupted and corruptible. This is the problem. So you have the kingdom of God along the side, the kingdom of man. One is temporary and fading, the kingdom of man, and one is present partially, but coming full, the kingdom of God. So I'm gonna dive in. We're gonna move through all of Daniel 2. If it's been a while since you read an entire chapter of the Bible, uh, I just wanna say ahead of time, you're welcome. We're going to read a chapter of the Bible today. So here we go, Daniel 2. I encourage you to follow along uh, so you don't fall asleep as we're going. There's a lot of text here. All right. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Nebuchadnezzar is the supreme ruler of the largest uh, nation, conglomeration of nations in the world, known world at the time. He has everything. He has all power. He has all authority. He has all wealth, access to everything, access to all kinds of pleasure and admiration. He has everything that everybody else wants meaning other nations as well. So if you're at the very top, you feel powerful perhaps, but you also feel uh, tenuous because everybody else is after what you have. And Daniel has a dream, or Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and we'll see in a minute, but he gleans from it that his life is fleeting. The things are unstable, that they're precarious, and therefore his sleep becomes fleeting and unstable. So he calls for the wise men of the kingdom. These were groups of people that were allegedly have you know, some kind of special insight from the gods. There's different groups. There are magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans. Those were astrologers, people who are supposed to get wisdom from reading the stars. And he wants them to come and give an interpretation of the dream. What does this mean? And I put an ellipsis in there, so I skipped several verses there. And in that ellipsis, what happens, I just didn't have room for it. He calls these, the, the leaders of these wise men, they're really wise men, come together and said, hey, I had this dream, I want you to tell, tell me what it means. And they're like, well, tell, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And, Dan, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, 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 no. If you're really real, you'll tell me what the dream was without me telling you. And then I'll know that the interpretation you give me is real. Otherwise, it's just like a horoscope, like it's general, like it can be interpreted in every single way. And the wise men are like, nobody, only the gods can do that. Nebuchadnezzar says, Nebuchadnezzar's not a fair person, mind you. He's like, okay, if you can't do that, off with your heads. All of you. How can he do that? He's a dictatorial king. He can do whatever he wants. And they're like, this isn't fair. Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, tough. 
And so he sends out an order to make preparations for the removal of the heads of all of these people, all of these wise men, because not only can they not tell him the interpretation, they can't tell him what the dream is. Uh, so this is a problem for, for the main characters of our book, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Why is it a problem? Because they're wise men. They're astrologers. They didn't sign up for this, right? They Remember, they were kidnapped in war. They were enslaved, brought into Babylon and said, now you're part of this group. They're like, wait, what? Okay, we were just in Jerusalem, but now we're part of this group. And if you can't tell me what the dream was, you're going to be executed. This is not fair, but it is the way it is in ancient Babylon. So the word reaches Daniel, and he, he hears of it and talks to the captain of the temple guard, whose name is Arioch. Um, Sorry, captain of the king's guard. And apparently he has some pull with Arioch. And we see in the book of Daniel, Daniel is a man of uh, good work and uncompromising integrity. And even if you're disagreed with, that gets noticed. So he's got some pull apparently with Arioch. Verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So he, through Arioch, Daniel seeks to get an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. And so apparently Arioch goes in and makes this request and maybe Nebuchadnezzar has calmed down a little bit. He says, okay. Now, as you read through Daniel, you realize Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a head case. He's up and down all over the place. Um, even by the end of this, he's making some specious conf confession of faith. But verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel's like, hey, Arioch, go make an appointment for us to go uh, give the interpretation to the king. And he goes back to his three buddies and like, guys, we got to pray. <laughs> Because we have to know what the, not just the interpretation, but what the dream was. Like, do you have any clues? Like, no clue. We have to pray for God to give us some wisdom about this. And I don't want to overinterpret what's happening here. These are unique events revealing the character of God and God's ways with his people. But I think it's interesting that this ensuing vision which Daniel receives and the interpretation which nourishes people God's people then and now for 2,500 years is given in the context of desperate prayer. They had no option. They had one chance to speak, <laughs> one chance to get it right. I don't know how much detail or specificity they had to give to make Nebuchadnezzar happy. He seems like a pretty hard man to please. We've got to get it exactly right or all of our group, hundreds, maybe thousands of people get executed. They couldn't game plan this. They just had to pray. And uh, I want to suggest that there is a way, a way to see this as a gift of God to them. Not a gift they would request, just one they could receive. Here's what I mean. It, and, and most of us know this from parts of our history, but then we forget it because it's uncomfortable. It is not terrible to be in a position where the only thing we can do is depend on the Lord. It's just uncomfortable. It is not terrible to be in a position where the only thing we can do is look to and trust in the Lord. Where what is required of us 
is more than we can deliver. God doesn't need us to be dependent on him. We are dependent on him. When we're in a situation of dependence, we simply see that clearly as we pray and acknowledge that. And in this case, they saw that clearly, and then they saw a few other things clearly. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. As we're going to see, God revealed to Daniel both the content and the interpretation of the dream, and then Daniel does the appropriate thing when he gets some insight. He gives thanks. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel is aware. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's aware that he and the people of God are in exile in a time where some kings come and some kings go. You and I, are in a season of exile in a time where some kings come and some kings go. Nebuchadnezzar came, Nebuchadnezzar went. The Babylonian Empire came and went. If we live long enough, the United States will come and go. And the next nation will come and go. And the next nation will come and go. And you might say, well, could that possibly be God's plan for the United States to go? Yes, it, actually it says that in Acts 17. Paul's like, God is determine the times and habitations for all nations under God, under, under heaven. Uh, God brings rulers to power and removes them. That's what Daniel's saying here. He gives wisdom to the wise, verse 21, and knowledge to those who have understanding. The wise get wiser. If you're wise enough to seek Yahweh, you grow in wisdom. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Right? It's not because, Daniel's saying, it's not because I have secret knowledge that I'm getting this because I'm so wise, but it's because, God, you have all knowledge and you're generous. Occasionally, all that knowledge, you share some of that with your people. And this is maybe a little anticipation of James 1 when we're told if you lack wisdom, if you lack knowledge, pray. Pray. Seek the Lord. And it, some of us know this, Right? As we, we're, we're lacking wisdom, we don't know what to do, we pray, either we pray by ourselves, we get a group of friends together, or the church is praying, things begin to become clear. Maybe not instantaneously, but things become clear in the context of prayer. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's manner. Matter. So Daniel knows that God gave him wisdom, and he doesn't have to do this, but he says, thank you. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> He's in a living relationship with him. Sometimes we pray, and like we need wisdom, and we don't know what to do, and something becomes clear, and we're like, oh, good. Thanks, God. I got it. <laughs> Never mind. I got it. <laughs> Wait, that was the Lord giving us wisdom, and it's appropriate to say thank you, like Daniel does here. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now, maybe Daniel could have made the case, hey, why don't you spare me and my three friends? These other guys can go. They, we, they did, probably didn't like them anyway. The, the Babylonian uh, group of wise men was made up of all these peoples conquered, not just Jews. 
but he advocates for all of the people enslaved because this was unjust, what was about to happen here, this execution. And probably a lot of them were also conscripted into this. They were enslaved into this like Daniel and his three friends were. 25, verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, it strikes me, it doesn't say this. Arioch is a Babylonian, you know, manager. His neck is on the line here. The king's given an order, let's execute them all. And Arioch's like, time out. Let's not. I got a guy who can do this. What do you think happens if Daniel doesn't deliver? It's not just Daniel that's got a problem. It's Arioch too. So something about Daniel's character caused this captain of the king's guard to say, I'm going to trust this guy. I have some fidelity to Daniel. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, they changed Daniel's name. Are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel, can you do this, says the king? And the answer is yes, but Daniel gives true credit. Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to king he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts that would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your own mind." So Daniel's giving credit where credit's due. Uh, no, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I didn't have this wisdom. And by the way, you didn't either. But there is one who is above me and above you. And he revealed this to me for you so you will know the thoughts of your own mind. You don't even know the thoughts of your own mind, but there is one who does. It's a very bold thing that Daniel's saying in a very diplomatic way. And so verse 31, I know, light jog. Maybe it's a medium jog at this point. Whew, here we go. Uh, this is the vision. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them would be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream now we will tell you the interpretation. So Daniel was right. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't interrupt him. Doesn't say, time out, you missed the dream, off with your head. Interestingly here, this is just a side note, the dream was revealed to Daniel individually, verse 19. But he says in verse 36, we will give you the interpretation. Uh, undoubtedly talking about his, uh, his three friends. 
Why is that? I think this, there's a biblical principle that shows up here and it's strewn through the scripture. The three friends are praying for this in verse 18. Therefore, they actually participated in it. They participated in it. Paul one time says, you are comforting me by your prayers for me. They're in a different, you know, written to the Colossians, they're in a different place. But you're actually comforting me by praying for me. It's a part of God's economy. As we're going to see, the kingdom is not made by human hands. It's made, it's a spiritual reality. So part, praying for something in God's economy is participating in it. That's why Daniel says, we will tell you the interpretation, even though he's the only one standing there. 37, verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So, again, Daniel's very bold here. You have a kingdom because it was given to you, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold in this dream, the Babylonian empire. So there are going to be successive empires. The Babylonian empire is the head of gold. Now, as a, take time out here for a second. This literature is from the 6th century BC. And we're about to have some prophetic specificity that makes people nervous because it's so clear in what's about to unfold. So much so that critics of the scripture who don't believe that I don't know, God knows the future controls anything, say this can't be that late. It can't be, or that early. It can't be from the 6th century BC. Because what comes after this is so much clarity and so much accuracy. It has to be from later. It has to be, you know, from the, from the 1st century BC. There's no good lexical reason to believe that. It's just the uh, critics will say, anti-supernaturals will say, it must be from, from the 100s BC. It can't be from 600 BC. All tradition and every reason we have to think about it says it's 6th century BC. It's from the time of Babylon. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you will rise after you. So that's the silver, right? The, the chest of silver. Historically, this is a prophecy of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was pictured as a chest of silver, right? Silver is less glamorous than gold. The, the Babylonian Empire was glamorous. If you remember the, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon, of course you don't remember them as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, allegedly, Nebuchadnezzar built those as a gift for one of his wives because she missed her homeland in Persia. It was glorious, right? ornate empire. It's like gold. Silver's not as ornate, but crucially, silver is stronger than gold. As the Medo-Persian empire was stronger than the Babylonian empire. How do we know that? They destroyed the Babylonians. <laughs> it's stronger than the gold. In 538 BC, uh, which the book of Daniel spans as well. It was a step down in glamour, the Medo-Persian empire, but a step up in power as silver is less glamorous but stronger than gold. And yet, a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. After the Medo-Persian Empire will arise another that was even stronger. They conquered that area in 333 BC. The Greeks, is a trivia question, anybody know the commander of the Greek army in 333 BC who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire? The name. You guys are amazing. 
You all knew Alexander the Great. I'm a little bit humbled by that. Okay, that is fantastic, right? Alexander the Great, uh, his dad, Philip of uh, Macedonia, had uh, perfected the Greek phalanx, the, the, the way of fighting with the long spears and all that kind of stuff, and they just wiped out the Medo-Persian Empire. They were the, the, the waste of bronze. Bronze is not ornate as ornate or valuable as silver, but it is stronger. How do we know it's stronger? They conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. Now again, this prophecy is given over 200 years before Alexander the Great is born. Verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, it shall break and crush all these. What empire comes after the Greeks? Romans, very good. About 146 BC at the Battle of Corinth. The Romans finally figure out that you can fight this Greek phalanx by just not fighting all at once. You just put people over here and over here and over here and over here. You attack from the side and behind and they're done. And uh, so it was a, a confederacy of Greeks, uh, Roman states at the time, the Roman Republic, later unified under Augustus Caesar as the Roman Empire, uh, arguably the greatest and most powerful empire ever, apart from the Mongol Empire, Genghis Khan. Um, the, that's the iron, less fancy, but stronger. But the base of the Roman Empire, as you know the history, was always weakened, both by intermarriage, intermarriage and political infighting. It still looked strong, but there was weakness mixed in. It was impure, and like any impure metal had fragility. Verse 41, And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. That is the Roman Empire. So it's a picture. The statues is successive empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, that's the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. We're going to unpack this in a little bit, but during the Roman Empire, something happens. Another kingdom comes on the scene, the kingdom of God. Taylor preached about this a couple weeks ago. Isaiah 11, this kingdom grows into a mountain that fills the earth as one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will saturate the earth. It begins in the time of that final empire, the Roman Empire. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar knows this is true. Verse 46, it's on the back of your insert there. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. This is how we know Nebuchadnezzar is not 
<laughs> he is not with it. Uh, let's worship Daniel. Uh, then the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar says, you told me the dream specifically. I trust that the interpretation is true. Turns out, it is. Okay, so I want to just spend the next couple minutes here looking at this, the, the last part, the picture of the stone that turns into a mountain. Just draw some implications. This is what God has nurtured and nourishes people with, in part, for 2,500 years now. As they're in exile, living among the kingdoms of man, we have a vision of the kingdom of heaven. So on the back, I've got seven, and I had seven because I just stopped counting. There's, I had like 13, then I had nine, and now I have seven, okay? It's, sermons can't go on forever. Whatever you may feel. <laughs> um, I think the, lo- the older I get and the more I do ministry, I, th- I think, I teach a preaching class and some, we talk about application, apply the text, this way to your life and this way to your life. Sometimes application is just this. Do you know God? Do you know what God is doing in the world? Here's some things God is doing in the world. One, what we glean about the kingdom of God here. One, it is not made by human hands. Verse 34. The kingdom of God is established and upheld by God. Governments are dependent on elections sometimes or cooperation of the masses or military power or economic power or persuasion or social cohesion to to become strong and remain strong. Not the kingdom of God. It's not dependent on any of that. It's dependent on God. What else? Nothing else. This is made by no human hand. This thing called the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign in the earth. It doesn't grow by human hands adding to it. It grows through prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's how the kingdom comes. It gets prayed into existence. After church, each Sunday in the back corner, we're gonna move this to the back corner, we have a group of people who wish to pray with you and for you. Let me say it a different way. We have a group of people who wish to ask for the kingdom of God to come into your life farther and farther and farther and more. You got areas of your life, you say, I really want the kingdom of God to, to be pressed into my life. Go pray with these guys afterwards. This is how the kingdom comes, prayer. We don't build the kingdom of God. Humans do not build the kingdom of God. We love our neighbor and pray that the kingdom comes. Now, times humans have tried to build the kingdom of God and combine the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God to always disastrous consequences for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not need the kingdom of man's help. It comes by God. Uh, You might think of it as it has a different operating system. The kingdom of God has a different operating system than the kingdoms of this world. It operates on prayer, on love, on faithfulness, on generosity, on trust, on forgiveness, and loving each other, 
and putting the best construction on what people say and not the worst suspicion on what people say, it's a different operating system. It also means that because this is a God-sustained kingdom, your frailty, my frailty, my limitation, your limitation is not a threat to it. It's not a threat to our life. Our flaws are not threats to us. They're just places God shows up and works. The fact that the kingdom of God is built by no human hand but by God alone means that God works through our abilities but not because of them, often in spite of them. It is not made by human hands. Number two, it begins unimpressively, verse 34. What kind of valuable metal is the kingdom of God? It's a rock, <laughs> a stone. Uh, that's the, in, in the Hebrew and Aramaic, which is printed, it's the technical term for stone. It's just plain old rock. That's what it means. Um, by the world standard, the kingdom of God is often poor, unimpressive, and weak. It's not based on wealth or fame or spin. I, somebody sent me a video of the guy who plays Jack Reacher, Alan Richson, you know this guy? Big, strong guy, really you know, well-known actor, giving his Christian testimony. And I said, I don't care, what do I care? We don't need somebody to tell us that Jesus is okay, who's famous and wealthy and powerful. Maybe he's, a, maybe he's a sincere Christian, I don't know. We don't need famous people to tell us Jesus is okay, right? Because the kingdom of God is not built on wealth and power and influencers. It's built on God and the work Jesus has done. Because of this, the values of the kingdom are often scoffed at by the kingdom of this world. Okay, fine. It's a different operating system. But with more specificity here, the kingdom of God is based on Jesus, who is a regular guy carpenter from Nazareth. Unimpressive. Scripture says he had no stately form or majesty that would be drawn to him. If, if you saw Jesus in your current con context, you'd say, there's a guy. There's a guy. He's about a five out of 10. There he is. There are several times in scripture where Jesus himself is referred to as a rock or a stone. He is a spiritual rock that followed the, the Israelites in the desert from which they drank. He is the stone the builders rejected. First Peter 2, he is a stone rejected by men but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Not just an unimpressive stone, a specific stone named Jesus. This is just a nerd piece. This is like nerd caveat for a few of us here. This, uh, Daniel... Chapter 2, verse 4 and on is written in Aramaic. The rest of the Bible is written, Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for Daniel, chapter 2 on is written in Aramaic, and one little part of Ezra is written in Aramaic. So this is in the Aramaic piece. There's three places where this word shows up in Aramaic in the Bible. I told you this is really nerdish. But one is here, the other is in Daniel 6, where it's the stone that's rolled in front of Daniel's lion's den that thought would be a tomb, and then Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, stamps it with his signet ring, just like Pilate stamped the, the stone rolled in front of Jesus' tomb. And the other place is Ezra 5, which is also an Aramaic place, where it talks about the stones that built the temple. Isn't that great? So the stone, which is Jesus, stone rolled in front of the tomb, stone that built the temple. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional, if that's just an Easter egg the Lord drops in the scriptures. Like, yeah, that, isn't, that, isn't that fun? Okay. Number three, it begins small. It rolls into the statue's feet. If something hits your feet, it's, it's much smaller than you. The kingdom begins small. In fact, it begins with one 
the God-man Jesus who comes and takes on flesh. One, that's it. But number four, it crushes the statue as a stone, not a mountain. Right? The crushing work is done as a stone. It does grow into a mountain, but it doesn't grow into a mountain and then smash the statue. It's, it blows apart the statue as a little stone that rolled into its feet. That single stone did something during the time of that final empire that changes everything as a single stone that eventually will supplant and remove all those other kingdoms of man. Again, this is different, different operating system. The kingdom of God doesn't have to accumulate all power and then act. It's simply one stone that does something that becomes the hinge of history. Jesus, he comes, he takes on flesh, he's crucified. And three days later, he walks out of the tomb and everything is different. If Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter morning, history has changed. Every, every empire, every kingdom of man has to deal with this. They can ignore it to their own peril, but everything is different. And so I don't want us to drift too far from this. The rest of history after this stone is application of what the stone did, of what Jesus has done. There's, in some ways, there's nothing more for God to do. It's just applying in history what Jesus has already done. There's nothing more he has to do. It's been finished, right? Nothing more to secure you or to secure me or to secure the future or heal our past. It has been finished. More of it will be applied to your life, but nothing else has to be done. Number five, Actually, we're going to hold that one to the end. Number six, this removes the other kingdoms completely. The values of the kingdoms of this world are ultimately incompatible with the kingdom of God. That is because at the center of every kingdom of man, no matter how great we think it is, is man. At the center of the kingdom of God is God. Those two cannot, that's a temporary situation. So whatever manifestation of the kingdom of man that is. A democracy, oligarchy, dictatorship, anarchy, fiefdom, whatever. Man is at the center in some way. And right now those grow alongside each other. But that is not a permanent arrangement. Daniel, his people, all through history, and we know one of those is fading. Why would we set our hope on that? One of those is and is coming full. Of course we would set our hope on that. So we now find ourselves as exiles living happily, like in the United States of America, which is a kingdom of man. Okay? The original uh, graphic for this series was a picture of the Statue of Liberty with a golden head of Nebuchadnezzar on it. But I thought that's a little too, that's a little too, a little too pushy. Um, but it's, it will be not less clear, not that America is evil, but let's be clear, it is a kingdom of man. It's, and it's a mixture of good and evil, right? It's a kingdom of man. God's given it, but it is corrupted and corruptible. These are like every kingdom. Um, this is neither for or against. It just is what it is. We want to be good stewards here knowing that this is a temporary arrangement. When we, uh, in seminary, Carmen and I moved into our, we got married and moved into our first apartment um, called Atherton. It was owned by the seminary. Literally, we're living in the ghetto, but it was cheap. Um, it was fine. It's great. Little community of people. We loved our neighbors. Um, it was just a little dangerous. And we were told that the rent is cheap, but the owner will fix nothing in your apartment. We said, we're, we're going to be here three years. We moved in, the door is broken. Uh, the, the closer on the storm door is broken. 
And I, I remember, Mr. Lutsky is going to fix nothing, but the rent is cheap. So what do I do? I fix the storm door. Why? Because we're going to live there for three years. And you know what? Somebody's going to live there after us. And if we didn't fix it, would Lutsky fix it before the next person? No. And it's a good way to love our neighbor, to take care of our property now, to steward it well, because it loves the next person who's going to be there. We, we weren't going to live there forever. We were stewarding the place as renters who were truly invested in it, and we were going to do good to it because it was good to us and it's good for the next people and uh, ostensibly good for our neighbors as well. I think that's a helpful way to think about inhabiting the kingdom of man as people of the kingdom of God. We are stewards right now. We want to love well. We want to do well. We want to seek the good of our culture and our city because it's good for us and it blesses other people. But we're not setting our hope on something that's fading. And we realize there will always be a mixture of healthy things and unhealthy things. We're not going to get too awfully discouraged about the unhealthy because there's something that's coming. Okay? And this something that's coming will completely remove the other kingdoms of man. One day we'll hear a shout from heaven and from, like we see in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ and he so reigns. It's why in Psalm 2, the rulers of this earth are said to, told to kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. Number seven, it's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Who's going to destroy it? It's not made with human hands. It's not constructed by human hands. Who's going to deconstruct it? Nobody. It can't be destroyed. Now, number five, and we'll close here. This grows into, this stone strikes the statue. Something happens that, that causes the destruction of the kingdoms of man during the reign of that last empire, the Roman Empire. And then the stone we see grows into a mountain that fills the earth. Eventually, this kingdom grows to cover the whole earth. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled about how this happens. Will this, will, you know, does it grow and grow and grow you know, constantly? And then Jesus comes back. Does Jesus come back? And I, it's growing, is what I know. It's growing. Now, I grew up in a tradition that said what it's like to exist in this world is things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus comes back and everything's better. I don't really know if that's the case because it seems like here the, the, the thing's growing, right? And, um, and you know what we have in history? It's growing. It's growing. Here's, okay, this is all a vision to Daniel. This is not a vision to us. We're talking about history now, okay? We're talking about some empirical data that we can talk about. At the cross, basically, you have Jesus, his apostle John, apostle John, and his mom. <laughs> it's not a good, not a good start. Resurrection happens, Pentecost, three thousand people, five thousand people. By the year, I get this from Roddy Stark, a sociologist at Baylor University. By the year AD one hundred, one hundred AD, approximately in the known world, one in three hundred and sixty people were professed followers of Jesus. One in 360. Okay. By the year AD 1000, that number has grown not to one in 360, but one in 200. Well, that's pretty good growth. One in 360 to one in 200. That means every 200 people, known people in the world, one of them professed following Jesus. By the year 2000, so some of you remember that, 24 years ago, that number, friends, was one in three. Now, we can argue about like, how, what seriousness of profession? I don't know, right? So not everybody's seriously professing. But you see the direction? What's happening? 
It's growing. It's growing. Uh, since 1960, uh, evangelical Protestants, now that's a word, sorry, we don't use the word evangelical anymore because that somehow means people that vote conservative and don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Um, uh, Bible-believing Protestants have grown at three times the rate of the world population growth. 20 years ago, somebody will ask, well, what about the religion of Islam? Uh, 20 years ago, Muslim families had 60% more kids than Christian families. Today, they have 35% more kids. As the Muslim faith westernizes, what happens is they have fewer children. That will completely converge by 2050. Right now, in the top 20 countries in the world where the gospel is growing the fastest, none of them are in North America, none of them are in Europe, and none of them are in Latin America. With the 20 countries that the gospel is growing the fastest, 11 of those countries are Muslim-majority countries right now. 19 and 20 of them, uh, 19 of them are in Asia or Africa. So we, I think we tend to look around as Americans like, oh, it's really bad. And the Lord's like, yeah, you're, it's fine. It's growing. My gospel is growing in this world. By 2030, if it's not already happened, China will have more professing, diligent Christians than the United States of America. It's probably already happened, actually. Um, do you see what's happening? Jesus, Mary, and John at the cross. Now, one out of three people in the world, and the gospel is exploding all over the world. What's happening? It's growing into a mountain. We don't have to take that on faith. We just look around. If you look to your left and to your right, that's what you see. This is, you are part of that mountain that's growing. By the way, in the, in the Bible, Eden is pictured as a mountain, Jerusalem is pictured as a mountain. New Jerusalem is pictured as a mountain. And when New Jerusalem touches down, it restores all of the earth to this sort of mountain glory garden kingdom again. And in, in the interim, the picture of the, the gospel growing is a mountain. This is because the nature of the kingdom of God is to expand in this earth, but not just in this earth, into your life and mine as well. The nature of the kingdom is to expand into every darkened corner of your life. Every area of sin and darkness, every area of anxiety and doubt and fear and frustration and longing and hope, the, the nature of the kingdom is to press into that. The nature of Jesus is to press into that. How does that happen? Well, we say, Lord, may your kingdom come in my life. Everything has already been done. Now do what you do. Um, that's part of the reason we come to the communion table every single week. This is picturing that everything's been done. He has accomplished everything he needs to do and now there's the application of that deeper and deeper into our life. Where wherever we need hope, wherever we need more security, wherever we need ease and comfort and peace, we say, Lord, come in your kingdom into that part of my life. So if you're in Christ, I wanna pray and invite you to come to this table and we'll partake together.